Hey, it's Talk Gnosis, the web's premier talk show about Gnosticism, Gnosis, mysticism, magic, uh, Christmas, Krampus, Santa Claus, King Arthur, King Arthur and Christmas, folklore, comic books, and anything else we feel like talking about. I'm your co-host, Deacon Jonathan Sword. Uh, joining me is guest co-host, Jason Memel. That's correct. Hello, everybody. I mean, we, we were I, we were talking before the show. I keep calling you guest co-host, but you're now on as a co-host about once a month. And I, you know, still say your name wrong, but it's not that it's that hard. But I did it. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, I, I'm like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life. I'm I, I'm a co-host second class. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everybody go home, ring your bells. <laughs> and Jason will ascend to the proper position of co-host. Joining us for our Christmas special, the topic is an Arthurian Christmas. Somehow we have never done a proper show on King Arthur and the Holy Grail. Now, this is not going to be that show, uh, <laughs> but we are going to talk about some of the connections between uh, Arthuria and Christmas. Again, it's, it's, it's actually extra ironic because the name of my parish in Montreal is Holy Grail Parish, but we'll get there. And joining us is returning to the show for his second Christmas special is Benito Serino. Hello, Benito. Hey, John. How you doing, man? Ah, doing pretty good. Pretty good. It, you know, it's it's a thousand degrees under zero. It still feels like the world is ending, even though the vaccine is on its way. But generally, I'm well. <laughs> now, not only do we have Benito, we have Craig Kringo from Craig Kringo from the Weird Christmas Podcast. Hello, Craig. Hello. How are you? Ah, fantastic. You know, this is ironic. Uh, the, the people watching at home, uh, the, the, both Craig and Benito are undercover uh, Christmas agents, right? So they cannot show their faces. <laughs> That's right. Yes. The ironic thing is I'm the one with the face for radio. And, like, you two have beautiful, beautiful podcast voices. Beautiful voices. So the people who are listening to the podcast version of this, you're really in for a treat. And those watching the YouTube show, you will just have to look at my horrible visage. Okay. Before we dive into the actual show, the reason why you're listening, I regrettably do have to do the commercial for our Patreon. The reason is, is that we literally cannot do this show without your financial support. Uh, we do hire the world's best digital studio, 99 Perspectives out of Chicago. If, when you start your podcast and radio show, you should hire them too. Uh, that said, and we're also super broke. Uh, being a Gnostic, you don't, you don't make much money. Actually, you don't make any money. So, uh, our show is brought to you by listeners and viewers like you. And I know that these are challenging times, hard times, but if you can donate, you can go to patreon.com slash Gnostic for as little as a dollar per piece of content per month. You can support everything that we do. Uh, you can also put a cap on in case we do a million pieces of content. So you can cap it at $5. You can also do one-time do donations at paypal.com slash Gnostic. And we completely understand if you're unable to help us with uh, filthy, filthy, filthy money. Uh, but if you're a fan and you like what we're doing, you can support us in other ways. Uh, share share the show on social media. Uh, tell people about the show. You know, mouth to ear. Uh, email some some links to, to your favorite shows to friends. Uh, uh, like and subscribe. Um, yeah. So the, the uh, 
that's that's it. Uh, the commercial is over. I would have put it at the end, but you know everybody turns it off at the end. Okay, Craig, Benito, what does Christmas have to do with King Arthur? <laughs> I'll let Benito go first on that one. Okay, uh, sure. Great question. Um, you know, I think everyone's heard of King Arthur. Uh, you know, for medieval people for whom uh, Arthurian legend, the matter of Britain, is an important uh, cultural, uh, important bit of their culture. You know, King Arthur in the Middle Ages was an exemplar of Christianity, right? He's one of the one of the nine worthies, one of the three Christian worthies, right? We're supposed to be um, the representatives of how to live according to a life, according to virtue and valor and that kind of stuff. Right. So, um, you know, so much of the cycle of legends around him is, is about, you know, Christian virtue. And so, you know, Christian holidays are a big part of that. Obviously the biggest one for King Arthur is Pentecost. Of course, that's the center of so many other, Legends most notable, the Grail Quest starts at Pentecost and um, the Round Table's Pentecostal Oath where every year they have to come back and renew their vows of chivalry every year. But, um, you know, Christmas is another one of those uh, times of the year when um, the knights would all gather together and Arthur, like we see also at, at other holidays as well, this is his time where he's like, I refuse to eat until I see a miracle. And that's like the, that's the kind of, um, you know, the, the starting incident of a number of legends. I know some that we're going to be looking at today, but you know, there's, uh, Christmas pops up again and again. It's, uh, of course the sword and the stone appears at Christmas. Arthur is, uh, crowned by the Pope at Christmas, uh, just like Charlemagne would be quote unquote later, depending on your point of view, uh, you know, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then it pops up again and again in a, a lot of these different stories, again, with kind of that um, inciting incident being we're all gathered together here and we want to see something crazy happen. And then a crazy thing happens. Um, so there's there's plenty of, of Christmas. And I think a big reason of that big reason for that is trying to um, draw both a comparison and contrast between Arthur as a great earthly king and Christ as the king of kings. Right. Where we see where they're in parallel also where Arthur diverges from the perfect model of Christ. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. The incest of baby killing. Sometimes he diverts and then sometimes he is God's chosen King and the worthy right on earth. Um, but you don't Craig, did you, right. do you think yeah. that besides this, this resonance uh, that you've already discussed Benito, you know, the, the comparisons between the King Arthur and the King of Kings, uh, does the fact that magic, and Christmas and Christmas as a liminal time. Do you think that has anything to do with the association? I think it does. Um, and partly, I mean, there's, there's a lot of sort of mythological ways that you can, or that I should say people have tried to tie connections between um, say things like uh, the wild hunt is a big, not it's in some cases connected to Arthur, but it's also a very strong Germanic mythological um, solstice, time that I know um, a whole lot of Arthur legends kind of tie into in certain ways, but that's one way that you get a lot of um, certain aspects of the old pagan winter celebrations coming through. And I mean, the whole reason why the winter solstice um, 
this is sort of a conversation I've been having with a couple people, interestingly enough, this year, but all about how Halloween and Christmas used to kind of be part of the same season. Yes. And what you were doing is having this whole season where something about the winter, something about the sun dying was the time when the sort of veil between the worlds seemed thinner. And so you would have connections to the other world uh, come through something about the spiritual world. So yeah, so it's a time of magic in that sense um, of where, where things are changing a little bit. Um, but, but that's sort of also getting into a whole lot of more speculative kind of pagan mythology stuff, which I often wonder how much of that is, you know, making connections or people trying to make stuff up now that could know, but you, you don't know, but no, I think so. So it's not necessarily canonical Arthurian connection there, but in the ways that I know a lot of people are trying to think about Christmas and trying to bring back old pagan celebrations, there's, there's definitely a lot of fruitful, fruitful stuff there. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking at my, my question sheet and I, I won't, commit seppuku on air but i i did realize i left out the wild hunt its connections to king arthur uh craig could you tell people what the wild hunt is for the, for those at home who don't know yeah it's um a legend that's told about uh the winter where odin basically would gather up his whole court and whole number of people and they would go on a hunt um and the um there are a couple versions of what they were hunting and why they were doing it um, but it's, it's mainly the idea that all of these figures are going on a grand hunt. And one thing in a lot of legends is that innocence would often happen to see this group of, of, um, you know, mythical or mysterious figures all going through the hunt. Um, I know Benito knows a little bit more about the actual mythology of the hunt than I do. Uh, I mean, you about got it. I mean, Odin, of course, is the main, is the main, uh, head of the hunt, but there's a number of people who could associate with it. Some legendary, uh, plenty historical. I've seen uh, Francis Drake named as the name of a wild, uh, as the leader of the wild hunt at one point, but uh, maybe even Sir Walter Raleigh, I think I've seen at one point uh, attributed to being with the wild hunt. But for the most part, you know, it's, it's mythological figures. Odin is the main one. Um, uh, Perkta, the southern. Southern German winter domestic god. Um, she leads her train of ghostly, unbaptized children um, through the sky um, <laughs> in the 12 days of Christmas. Um, Wild, Wild Hunt is definitely um, primarily associated with that time, the 12, 12 days of Christmas, the, what the Germans call the, uh, the Raunechte, the smoky nights, um, when dangerous things are happening. And so there's a lot of folklore about that, you know, leave... Uh, leave your barn door open so it can they can fly through unobstructed. Um, generally, there's not a specific um, thing to be hunting. Um, although in in Germany, they do say the wild hunt is after um, um, Moslo, the moss people, little little woodland people who are made of moss. Especially the especially their wives is apparently the main prey of the wild hunt. Um, and so pe people are encouraged to wel welcome them indoors or create protective uh, shelters for them out in the woods by like uh, drawing crucifixes on uh, hollow logs and such so they can hide from the wild hunt. But uh, yeah, King Arthur too, I, that's the connection. King Arthur is associated <laughs> with the wild hunt in some English myth. He is, he is said to lead it as well. Yeah. Hmm. 
and across these different figures and across uh, these different countries, it is often, as Benito said, associated specifically with, with Christmas time. Um, I have heard yep. the theory that it was uh, it's migrating geese, um, who in Europe would be <laughs> later than here in North America. Um, I, I think that that's probably not true, but but who knows? I, I guess perhaps, you know, there was some peasant who was really freaked out by some geese late at night. Uh, okay, so um, we covered the, the, the wild hunt, but the best known Christmas Arthur story, and a lot of people out there would have encountered it in school or university. It, it's probably uh, Gawain, Gowan, and the Green Knight. Um, Craig or Benito, whoever wants to jump into it, then the other can add things that they forgot. <laughs> did, did, would you mind, even though I said many people would know it, but could you could you sum up this this story for us? Sure, I'll do the first part, and because uh, it sort of falls into two parts. How about that, Benio? I'll take the first part, and can you do the second the second part, the second yeah, meeting? Okay. All right. So the first part is that King Arthur's court is meeting for a Christmas celebration, and they're all around the table, and um, all of a sudden, in walks this giant green knight. And nobody knows who he is. They've never seen him before. Uh, but basically he comes in and um, tells anyone that, hey, if you can cut off my head, then you'll be, um, or, um, oh shoot, so, sorry, I'm blanking on the exact terms now. But if you can cut off my head, you'll, you'll basically win the contest with me. And what's, oh shoot, is there a reward in the first part? I'm trying no, to think. I, I, I think it's reward. just like the oh. Arthur sits down and says the, I, I'm not going to eat until there's a miracle, right? Yeah, and then yeah. I believe the challenge is just you, you, you strike me a blow, and then a year and a day from now, I'll re blow. Return the blow. The That's it. That's it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. What happens after that, Benito? And uh, yeah, uh, out of all the yeah, af uh, all, af out of all the knights present, um, Arthur's uh, nephew Gawain. Um, one of his best knights, he takes up the challenge. And uh, yeah, d descending from the table, he goes down to approach the green knight, takes his big gilded axe, and in one blow cuts off the green knight's head. To his terror and amazement, uh, and definitely suffice that Arthur was looking for, the green knight uh, then stands up, picks up his head, uh, gets back on his horse and says, see you next year. Right. <laughs> um, and so, uh, then we get kind of a, we get kind of a montage sequence of, uh, Gawain being terrified for the next year. And we get the passage of time by the marking of other Christian festivals. And then, uh, on Halloween, uh, Gawain goes, oh yeah, I have to, uh, go, I have to get ready for this. And so he proceeds out into the woods looking for the green chapel where the green knight resides. And, um, he can't find anything. And then finally, Christmas Eve, um, he prays that the Virgin Mary will reveal to him uh, a church where he can hear mass for Christmas, at which point the Green Chapel, which turns out to not the Green Chapel, sorry, he sees a big uh, castle. And he is there met by the Lord of that castle, whose name is Bertilac, who welcomes him in. And uh, he's introduced to Bertilac's wife. And uh, Bertilac is this amazing, welcoming host. And uh, he challenges uh, Gawain's name, and he says, what I will do is I'll go out uh, every day for three days, and um, 
I'll bring you back something, what I've, whatever I've acquired in the day. And then at the end of the day, you'll return to me whatever you have acquired during the day. Um, and so he goes out hunting and he gets uh, three different animals. I forget what they are. The last one is a fox. Um, and he, he brings the animals to Gawain. Meanwhile, Gawain's at home with Lady Bertilac, who tries to seduce Gawain. He refuses chastely as a knight of the round table should. And nevertheless, he does allow her to kiss him on the cheek on the first day, two kisses on the next day. The third day, she kisses him and uh, gives him a green garter, which she says will protect him from all harm. Um, at first, he uh, thinks he shouldn't accept this, but he his fear of the green knight overtakes him. And so each night uh, when Bertilak comes back, you know, he brings the animal that he's hunted during the day. And then he says, what did you get today? And then Gawain kisses him. Right. And then on the third day he kisses Bertilak, but tell him about the green garter. And oh, wait, sorry, um, sorry to interrupt. The insinuation so then, is that, that the lady wants more than a kiss. Right. Oh, for sure. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's, what's happening is every, back on the cheek and then every, that's it. <laughs> like the insinuation is, no, Hey, no, you know, my husband's away. Here's a kiss. What it, what do you think? Yeah. 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 Every every day, basically, Gawain is waking up with this lady in his bed, and he has to basically push her away. And and the kiss is the compromise, right? He says, I, I don't want to be rude because you're my hostess, and so I'll accept a kiss, but anything more would be a betrayal of, um, of the host, right? And also a betrayal of my oath of chastity as well, right? So, um, uh. Yeah, then it's time for him to finally uh, go to the Green Chapel. Bertilak directs him toward it, um, which it does turn out to be a cave um, out in the woods. And the Green Knight is in there. And the Green Knight says, now it's time for your return gift. It's my turn. And he's, uh, he swings his axe at Gawain's neck, uh, does not hit him. Uh, he does it again, does not hit him. The third time, he does hit him, but only a small nick on the neck that just draws a little bit of blood. And then at this point, the Green Knight reveals that he was Bertilak all along, and the and the three blows represented his three chances at being honest with his host, which he was the first two days, and the small nick was because his fear caused him to not be honest with his host and reveal the Green Garter. Um, and so Gawain returns to Camelot, tells the story. Um, he thinks the Green Garter is a sign of his shame. The other knights think it's actually a sign of pride, and so they all start wearing Green Garters on their arms as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Uh, Craig, uh, is there any uh, details from the story that Benito left out or you think that are important to highlight before we, we move on? Uh, one thing that, uh, that's the story, absolutely. But one thing that I know a lot of people will focus on is sort of the um, the symbols that show up a lot in the story. Uh, for example, there's a, a pentangle on, um, or a five-pointed star on um, uh, Gwen's shield. I believe, or is it, or is it Bertilac's mm -hmm. shield? Uh, no, it's on his shield. No, it's, it's, it's on Gawain's shield. Gawain's shield, okay. I always, yeah. I get this mixed up sometimes. Um, but yeah, so that's <laughs> uh, one important symbol, because, and then also some of the things, um, a lot of the numerology sort of readings of uh, strange old, you know, not too strange, but but old medieval texts get really important uh, for people who are looking for sort of more alchemical types of readings. And so all the things about the 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 number of blows, how many of three, and then the symbolism of the different animals that he hunts each time are supposed to have a whole lot of weight 
in in how you return things. But that that five pointed star, that pentangle, which is supposed to be uh, uh, an important sign of what makes Gawain special, is yeah. um, a really important symbol. Yeah, for sure. The, I mean, the author makes a lot out of the importance of the number five in description in describing the the pentangle. They represent that his five senses are on point. His five fingers are good. And he has the five <laughs> five virtues. I forget what they are, but they're like compassion, uh, courtesy, um, fellowship, those those kind of things. And so, um, yeah, it's supposed to represent the the five virtues of Gawain. Yeah. And, and I believe it's actually the, the pentacle or pentangle on one side and then the Virgin Mary on the other. That's Yeah, that's right. Virgin Mary with uh, the infant Christ on the inside so that he can look at it and be inspired by her and pray to her, I guess, like as he does on uh, Christmas Eve. Yeah. And, uh -huh. that, and that that actually makes it a little extra Christmassy as well, right? He, he literally has a yeah. nativity while he's there. And of course, this would blow some people's minds where it's like, well, the, the pentacle, the pentacle, uh, a five-pointed star, that, that's a symbol of magic and paganism, right? But uh, here it is. It's very important in the story. Uh, and it was a, a sign that was used by many Christians. You can find it in many churches. Though uh, I did find an article that, that I sent to Benito and Craig that said that, that it didn't really become that popular of a symbol. It wasn't really used that much until after um, uh, uh, this piece. So it, it could be that this piece influenced the use of it, or it was just sort of a, a, a general part of a general wave of, of this symbol becoming more important in, in this time. Yeah. I mean, you definitely see it as a, as a magical talisman, for example, in uh, the Testament of Solomon, you know, it's Solomon using a, of course, later, um, it becomes a, a six-pointed Star of David that he uses um, for the sign of Solomon. But in Testament of Solomon, it's definitely described as a five-pointed star that he uses to control demons. Yeah. One thing, like I uh, to to kind of jump in on a lot of this is that, like, one thing I as I've been like absorbing some of these stories, and I've I've known parts of them, but like, what I find so fascinating about this is that, like, well, for one thing, we kind of sketched about the authorship of this that that like the authorship of a lot of these is like a a continual process like there wasn't mm. you know like there's not a um you know there's not like a, a single author the way we think of one now uh it's more like a series of people adding to a thing um but also how clearly symbolic this is do you know what i mean like there's there in, instead of it trying to be like a subtle reference a subtle little like thing that they hope the fans catch it's like no check it out like he picked up his own head and walked away and said he'd come <laughs> back in a year you know like um so I I don't know if uh, if it's worth like I'm I'm edging my way towards a towards a question here, but like, uh, what's the value of of that sort of aggregate storytelling that is clearly symbolic uh, in in terms of what it's trying to do? Like I don't know if you guys can speak to that. Uh, maybe it's yeah. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll I'll lay that subject in front of everybody. Yeah, I, I'll actually start before our, our beloved guests start just with more of a comment than an answer to the question, which is Craig just broke my brain by mentioning alchemy. Uh, and now I'm going to have to go back and read the entire piece and go through all the alchemical symbols because a green knight and beheading are very important in alchemical symbolism. So thanks, Craig. Uh, you've broken my brain. So that's that's my comment. But back to Jason's actual question and also to clarify uh, the Jason like the this is obviously based on, on earlier myths so it's collaborative right but yeah, yeah one yeah. author 
one author sort of wrote the text known as as uh, uh, Gawain and, and the Greek yeah. Knight. Uh, but and, it still, you know, it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, he right. didn't sit down one day and be like, I'm going to make this up. Right. And that's true for most medieval authors. Like even Chaucer makes a case, makes a point to say that, hey, the Canterbury Tales is not originally mine. I mean, that was sort of a common thing for a medieval author to do is to insist that what they're telling is a very old story. And because the idea was if you just made it up right now, well, that's no good. You know, the best things are the oldest things. And so every author, even when they were being very original, was always at pains to say, I didn't just make this up out of whole cloth. Don't think I'm I'm just lying and creating things. So yeah, and the Gawain poet, um, the poet itself, we don't know their name, but it was probably, it's, there's another poem called The Pearl um, and a couple others that are, are pretty well attributed to being the same person, but those stories definitely are, are told and, and retold. And so the poet certainly wouldn't have been the one, he didn't come up with the knights, he didn't come up with Arthur, he, he didn't even come up with Gawain. And there are versions of Bertilak's um, uh, challenge to him, that yeah. same kind of thing, three days. Yeah. That the, that's a sort of old trope that goes back. Um, they can find all kinds of versions in throughout Europe. So yeah, so that's pretty typical of medieval literature that what you're doing is you're taking source material and what's interesting is how you're sort of making taking a new spin on it um but but yeah the idea of uh, that's kind of true in general that in the middle ages you know original authorship was not seen as a good thing it was mm. yeah. yeah absolutely true you see the same i mean that's the reason why so many uh apocryphal christian texts pseudepigraphal jewish texts are the reason they're pseudepigraphal is they're they're attributed to someone else because you want to have that historical and often apostolic authority. Um, and so, yeah, you put someone else's name on it or you say, this is a translation instead of saying this is an original uh, text. You say, this is a translation from a Hebrew text that I found in a cave somewhere or something. Um, One of my or, favorite examples, there's a 15th century guy named John Lydgate who claims to have written this, this massive, it's like one of the longest things, it's the Book of Troy is what it's called, and it's incredibly long and incredibly boring, and he claims it's a translation, but the thing he's quote-unquote translating is probably about a thousand words or something like that, and he turned it into this like volume upon volume upon volume, um, you know tale of the the fall of Troy. So yeah, but that's exactly what he wanted to do was write his own thing, but you have to present it as if it's something that's already old and established. Anyway, mm, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that's it. That's well, and, and so to, to jump further, further onto that is that like, so not only is there is that sense of collaborative ownership uh, and, and like people not taking specific credit for it, um, but then like going back to that thing about the like and Jonathan's note about the alchemy, like uh, writing your story so that you are specifically winking, um, like you're not even hiding it, but you're being very clear that this is a symbol, this is a reference, this is a, you know, um, uh, like you're, you're not just telling a story, I guess. Does this make sense as a difference? Yeah. Like, um, yeah. and, and it's pretty common too, partly because of all the talk about, um, but it, it pretty much this. So a lot of the scholars at the time were trying to figure out how can we make the New Testament mesh with the Old Testament? 
And so what you had was all sorts of people come up with basically allegorical reading where they say, okay, we can make the Old Testament work by saying that what it really was doing was foreshadowing stuff that happens in the New Testament. And there are a lot of people who say, well, that's kind of where you get the birth of what we might think of as all these sort of allegorical readings or symbolic readings or things like that. So the idea that you would tell a, a story that only has one level um, just for entertainment, that really wasn't, again, that's not the starting point. Like any good piece of literature is something that is meant to be read, not just in two ways, but but they had three and four. I mean, there, there are four common ways to, to read the Bible and then therefore to read everything else that had sort of a symbolic level, a religious level, to the actual plot level, uh, but then the sort of, you know, all these different levels that are going on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, absolutely. So even a story like, like the romances, like the Arthur, Arthurian stories were meant to have all these, they were meant to be allegorical and meant to be read in many ways at once. Um, and C.S. Lewis actually has a really good book called The Allegory of Love, which if you're interested in that, it's a very straightforward reading of why they thought that was the most beautiful and the most intellectual way to tell a story and to read it, was that you obviously are supposed to be reading something at all these different levels at once, and that's the way to basically read with your soul instead of just to read with, you know, your worldly, worldly mind or body or, or just, you know, just for entertainment to be reading with the whole person and soul at once. Now, like I, I'm very guilty. Like when I listen to a podcast and I hear a host ask a question that I know is clearly a leading question, I'll actually like shout leading, leading the witness, your honor, <laughs> even though they, the podcaster can't hear me, but in the, I'm about to commit the same thing, leading question here uh, <laughs> um, is uh, like, is that a reason maybe why these stories are still resonant? Like that people are still interested in them now that are, doing podcasts on them now is that they is that because like as you say that like as C.S. Lewis was saying that there's a there's an impact a greater level of impact or a, a deeper impact perhaps um, when it is being composed and intended beyond just entertaining you for an afternoon I I, I would say yeah I mean yeah if it, if it weren't for that kind of that kind of impact on multiple levels I, I, I mean consider how much you know, stuff from antiquity in the middle ages that haven't survived. I think, I think it's these, I think it's these, these layers and the, these universal elements to them that help them um, survive through, you know, textual transmission being passed on, being adapted and so on. It's because they hit people in more than one way. And uh, I think this is, um, you know, a, a great example, obviously, if I remember correctly, Craig, you might remember was the Green Knight was like lost for a while, and then they, there's only like one manuscript of it or something. So yeah, that's, uh, that's right. Not a not a great example for my point I'm making via vis a vis uh, textual transmission, but still my my point stands. I think having these multiple layers increase the appeal beyond simple um, entertainment. I think the reason the things that survive survive is because because they have something more to them than simple than just a simple story mm -hmm. they have they have something that resonates yeah and I think too, I mean, for a modern audience too, we can look at this stuff and it's mysterious and open to all kinds of different connections that we want it to because we're kind of so far away from the immediate uh, contexts of what was going on that you know like the article you sent us about um, about the different sort of religious or pagan meanings that are going on in the text. I mean, we have no idea what the immediate audience 
for the poem would necessarily have been thinking. And so for us, it's fun to start looking into like, well, we can open it up to so many different things. Could is it could it be about alchemy? Well, sure, we know nothing about the author, so we can assume all kinds of wonderful things that that he might have been into. And um, you know, that's one reason why I think a lot of uh, older stuff like this, especially, and even when it does get into that symbolic level, it it opens itself up to all kinds of things that people can find that they that they if you want to find things in there. And it doesn't mean you can kind of make things up whole cloth, but because it's old, it's going to seem weird. And that weirdness <laughs> opens you to all kinds of different possibilities that, you know, a simple novel wouldn't. Yeah. Like I have access to um, academic uh, libraries and academic search. So, you know, I put it through the search engines for the journals. This is a very popular piece for a very mm -hmm. wide variety of journals. So like, for instance, oh, yeah. it's like uh, the queer studies, like really likes uh, this text. Right. And, and yeah, I don't know if that is a read in or, or a modern interpretation or postmodern, um, you know, definitely with, with the two Lord, uh, with, with the night and the Lord and the kisses, like I, you know, I can see the contrast. But um, it, it's an incredibly popular piece just for what Craig is saying. We, we can really interpret it, engage with it because it works on so many levels. But my most important question, the, the diehard question, uh, is this a Christmas story that has Christmas themes or is it just a story that happens to take place at Christmas? So this is the diehard question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's a Christmas. It's a Christmas story. I mean, because at you know, for one thing, the setting at Christmas. You know, the 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 opening at Christmas. Christmas was a time for games, right? And so the idea that the knight comes in and says, "Do you want to play a game?" Straight up jigsaw style, um, and that that wouldn't have been out of place, you know, at a at a Christmas feast. But then also, so much of the seasonal imagery and and symbolism is about the that that kind of solstice tension, right? Win winter and the sun, right? Obviously, the Green Knight, all green with his hunk of holly, he's he's winter guy. He um, and then you've got Gawain riding out in red with the star on his shield. Here's the sun, right? The summer. There's this kind of there's this winter summer tension between the two of them. Of course, you know. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, it just like Craig was saying about how Halloween and Christmas are one long season, it, it's probably pretty significant that he starts his search for the Green Knight the Halloween after, right? And then succeeds on Christmas Eve. Um, also on that, so I, I have a bugaboo. It's, it's a completely separate rant that I won't do on the show, but I feel that we actually live in an extremely literal age, an age that is much more literal than previous generations. And I, and I ascribe this to the internet, the medium is the message, uh, but that it's a different rant. So I, I feel like if this story was told now, the knight would be dressed in white, Right. Uh, signifying, you know, because it's a Christmas story, it's associated with winter. So why is the night green? And as Benito said, why does he carry a sprig of holly? Yeah, and I think um, for that one, the green there can, and on you talked about all the scholarship and the, the scholarship of why he's green is massive. Just, just <laughs> trying to figure out what basic symbolism is in this thing is huge. But um, like Benito said, he can, that greenness can, in, especially in the romances, uh, in, in the 
the sort of chivalry stories like that. Greenness usually is something that ties you with the forest or that ties you with uh, something more about the mysterious world. Um, and that's really kind of what he's on the one hand supposed to be is that he's, he's not really of this world. He's, he's something more about the, um, in some ways the natural world could be seen as the more frightening world um, in the, in medieval way that people looked at things, that it wasn't so much we would think of it as just the physical world as versus the spiritual, but instead you're there talking about the wild world. And so he's coming from the wild place into the civilized place. And that wildness brings with it um, mystery. And then Holly is there because it's, it's a connection to being something evergreen. Uh, it's the idea that you survive the winter and that, 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 you know, that, that world can keep coming back. And so, um, so he's a bit then of a hybrid kind of character that the greenness and, and with the Holly is a way to say that he's both something sort of scary, but he also represents the, the constant renewal that can appear in those ways. So, um, that to me is what makes a little more sense about, about why he would be green. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, anything else about uh, the Green Knight before we move on to our next King Arthur slash uh, Gawain uh, story? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else fun. Um, the only other thing I would say about about why it's interesting as a Christmas story is that, um, like Benito said, it's it's a, Christmas was a time for games, and Christmas was also really during the middle ages, Christmas was not the high church holiday. Like it was not the central holiday. It was like, we may read this and say, Oh, it's set of Christmas. Oh, this must be a super, super important time. Probably for that audience, for the medieval audience to set it at Christmas meant, Oh, this is the time when people are just kind of being weird and flaky. And maybe when they're not being super holy, because Christmas was the time when still the big thing was to sort of have games and drunkenness and it's when you'd have uh, more of the thing like the tricks that we might associate with halloween of people going off and um uh you know demanding of their of the lords that they give them food that day in a sort of topsy-turvy world um the big really ho holy holiday would be easter and so christmas was more of a time for rebellion and um a non-religious in some ways celebration like it wasn't the big important celebration there was still i think in a lot of people's minds an acknowledgement that christmas was the the more of a solstice that had had christianity kind of put on top of it and we made it christ's birthday like whether or not people actually literally believed that um there was still all this stuff going on about christmas that everybody was still arguing about whether or not we should celebrate in this way or whether it should be an important day um even in the even the, the Catholic Middle Ages still had, just like the Puritans did, they thought, you know, maybe we should get rid of this because this is the time when everybody runs a little crazy. Um, so so to have it set at Christmas is really more an indication of this is a this is more of a strange time rather than this is a pure holy time, like we might assume that it would be. So um, different attitude towards Christmas than I think yeah. most of us would assume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and and I'll link actually, you know, our show with Benito, our previous show was Dark Christmas. And uh, I, Craig, I, I think I've, I've said this to you before, but, but I actually feel like in both consciously and subconsciously, a lot of the stuff we associate with Halloween was actually originally associated with Christmas. And then, you know, through the influence of the church and we can't have all this weird stuff on the, the birth of the savior got pushed on to Halloween. That that's my theory at least, but um, you're not alone. You're not yes. alone in that. Yeah, there's a lot of people uh, looking at that. Yeah. 
Is it is is it the church or is it Coca Cola deciding that they'd invented a uh, a particular brand on, of Santa that they wanted to be just jolly and not scary? <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, that too, yeah. But um, but yeah, but and, and yeah, the actual sort of history of the how of the of the holidays and, and the iconography is really cool. And um, I try to get into a lot of that. But yeah, it's a it's a complicated story. But I think in in general, you're right that um, Christmas. And the solstice and all the ways that it's been celebrated uh, throughout are usually a little darker than we we think of. Not not pure on Halloween scary. This is the time of death because it's also the time of rebirth, and and that's what the solstice side of it is all about. That the sun is coming back. Um, but yeah, throughout. I mean, even up until about 150 years ago, um, Christmas was still a time to run around and get drunk and make noise in the streets. Um, it wasn't yeah, the sort yeah. of sit down in your house with your family and, and, you know, be calm and, and cozy. That sort of Victorian idea that we have, that was a bit of a new idea uh, for the well, Victorians. And, and in fact, like almost uh, the, like when, when we see that transition from like, say pre essentially pre Christmas Carol to post Christmas Carol, like, I mean, it's not probably as simple mm -hmm. as just that story, but like, that 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 ended up defining so much of of the holiday spirit you know oh yeah, uh, yeah. uh but when you but again it's actually it's actually a ghost story <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you know which, yeah i mean that's spirits. dickens is a great dickens is a great sort of transition thing that he's mm -hmm. it's it's a ghost story but it's also a ghost story that ends in a sort of perfect happy domestic scene where you know he becomes good uncle scrooge to everybody else and you all go you know have a big party where you spend all your money and sit around and be happy yeah yeah, yeah. but but, but yeah, yeah. Oh, oh sorry i was gonna say but before that point and i it's interesting when you say there the the like even in the medieval period like there there's this debate about what christmas is i think it's interesting that like that probably when dickens was writing christmas carol he wasn't seeing christmas as the way we see it now like that was maybe the innovative idea of like, what if Christmas was this cozy time was like the big twist, you know? <laughs> yeah. And and that's sort of, it's not just Dickens, like the Victorians kind of did that with everything. Like they might, they love to make everything sort of feel like a sentimental tradition that had been going on forever. But that was just part of the aesthetic that they liked. Like, let's make, mm -hmm. let's pretend like this new thing we like to do is something very, very traditional uh, because that sort of adds this extra fun layer to it. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, they were saying even at the time, like, let's celebrate like the Germans have done forever and ever and ever because that's what, you know, that's what uh, Victoria and, and Edward are doing as he brings his, mm -hmm. his German stuff over. Well, kind of. It's also just that they liked that nice sort of English coziness and they're like, this is a way we can, we can tie that to, to a sort of make it feel like it's a bigger, longer tradition that's going mm -hmm. on. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, prior to, prior to the to the era of the Victorians, you know, Christmas had become fully sedate. Like a lot of people overstate it a little bit, and they say that Christmas was dead and Dickens revived it. But the fact is, I mean, the Puritans did a lot of damage um, to Christmas, trying to eliminate those kind of boisterous. Um, old time Christmas traditions and, you know, they didn't like Christmas at all. It was out, outlawed, you know, under Cromwell. Um, and even though it came back, uh, by the time of the industrial revolution, uh, Christmas becomes less of a big public display because, you know, in the middle ages, it's all about the Lord of the manor welcomes everyone in. There's no more work to be done. So everybody come in, have a party, have some food. You can rest while nature rests. Um, after industrialization, that becomes a lot less necessary. And so Christmas becomes a much smaller, more private 
kind of family affair by the time of Dickens. And Dickens is like, well, let's let's try and get the Christmas spirit going. And you know, Christmas Carol wasn't even his fir first take, right? That wasn't even his first first um, attempt at trying to revive uh, Christmas in England. Um, the, the, he tried in the Pickwick Papers first, and it it didn't take off the way that uh, Scrooge did. But um, hmm. but uh, yeah, Craig is, Craig is definitely right about the Victorian spirit, as if as if it is this continuity of tradition from what they called the old Christmas, that Arthurian style medieval Christmas, even though there was no continuity, right? It's, it's a fake, it's a fake continuity of tradition, but that's the, the Victorians were huge on that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to say, Jason, I think also that the, the contribution of commercialism too, for sanding off the edges of Christmas as being a weird time, a scary oh, yeah. time, you know, definitely, right? Um, even Coca-Cola's role of, in creating the image of Santa Claus, which is in many ways overstated, but at, yeah. at the same time, you have Santa Claus-type figures who, okay, well, now we're, we're quite familiar with, with the, the St. Nicholas and the Krampus. Right, the, uh, the you have the gift giver, the nice guy, and you have the meanie. But there's a lot of Santa Claus style figures who even you know dressed in red, uh, had long white uh, beards, who did both. Right, who combined yeah. both these figures. So if you were good, then you got a present. If you were bad, he might throw you in a bag and take you to the forest. Uh, he oh, yeah. might kill. He might hit you with a switch. Uh, Craig, you know this from your postcards even, right? Which come mm -hmm. from the Victorian times. But there's an awful lot of Santa-like figures doing terrifying things to children on those. Um, but, of course, that can't stand if you're going to be creating ads, right? You can't have somebody that kids are scared of. <laughs> so Yeah, and I, I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of that sanding off of the edges, you know, we you see that starting in the early 19th century, um, with guys uh, like Washington Irving, another one whose role is a little overstated, but him and the New York Historical Society, um, you know, they kind of wanted to sand those edges off. They wanted to to make Christmas into a family-centric, in-the-home, Christmas morning opening presents quietly, um, not out in the streets getting drunk, Calathumpian bands demanding money, roving street gangs going door to door and all that stuff. They wanted to get rid of that stuff and class it up a little bit. And so I think, you know, by the time you get to that fully, yes, you know, slick, um, Haddon Sundblom Santa in the 1930s, I mean, I, I think that's the end of a, of a century long progression of, of an intentional um, sedation of, of Christmas. <laughs> Okay, so so back back to Gowan and the court of King Arthur, uh, the marriage of Sir Gowan. Can can one of you sum it up, and and then you know we can talk about if again the diehard question is it is it Christmassy or does it just take place at Christmas? Uh, you do you want to, you want this one, Craig? You want to you want to do this summary? I'll let you. Know. I'm gonna kick it over to you. <laughs> kick it over to me. Okay. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, you know, we would need to talk specifically about um, the the ballad version, the um, the, mar the marriage of uh, Sir Gowan, because um, the original version, which is anonymous but occasionally attributed to Thomas Mallory, of course, famously the author of um, *La Mort d'Arthur*, the most um, influential work of Arthurian uh, legend, um, the 
the wedding of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnell is the original version, which is not set at Christmas. It's only the ballad version later on that gets the, the setting of Christmas. But um, the short version is that uh, an evil baron uh, captures King Arthur and um, says that uh, he can, the only way he can uh, survive this capture is if he answers a riddle. And that riddle turns out to be, um, what do women want? And so Arthur delegates that to Gawain. Um, <laughs> he goes out searching uh, worldwide, trying to find the answer to the riddle, what do women want? He actually accumulates books full of potential answers um, before he finally meets, uh, and this is a common motif in Arthurian legend, what is called the Loathly Lady. Um, in the original version, she's named Ragnell. She does not get a name in uh, the ballad version. And she's this hideous woman who in different versions is described as being even monstrously ugly, like her eye, uh, she has eyes where her mouth should be and that kind of stuff, right? Um, and uh, she says, I'll tell you the answer to the riddle if you promise to marry me. And Gawain being loyal to Arthur, his king and his uncle, um, he says, I'll, I'll do it. I will, I will marry you ugly person um, because I want to save my uncle's life. And she says, the thing that women want is they want to have their way. They want sovereignty is, is the original um, term. They want to be able to choose for themselves, make their own decisions, um, and so on. Gawain says, okay, sounds fake, but all right, I'll add that to the list of potential answers. Um, uh, that does turn out to be the answer. Arthur's life is saved. Gawain and the lovely lady get married. Um, she makes a hideous spectacle of chowing down at the wedding feast and embarrasses Gawain <laughs> greatly, but he's still, uh, because he is a righteous dude, he, uh, he does what he's supposed to do. And then on the wedding night, um, she turns into a beautiful woman and reveals to him that she's actually under a curse, um, that she has to be ugly during the day, but she turns into her natural beautiful form at night. And um, she says, which would you prefer? Do you want me to be ugly in the day and beautiful at night or beautiful in the day and ugly at night? With the idea being do you want me to be beautiful when we're out in public or do you want me to be beautiful when we're, you know, in private? And um, Gawain, having learned the lesson of the riddle, says, you choose. And that was the correct answer because that breaks the curse and she's beautiful all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it, you might recognize that story from the Canterbury Tales. It's, this, it's the Wife of Bath's Tale. Um, there's many other, you might recognize it from Shrek, I think. I don't know. But uh, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> there's many variations on, on this this kind of story, but that's, that's the basic thing. Um, the ballad version definitely sets it at Christmas. The original, the original does not. Yeah. Um, do you think the diehard question in the ballad version, like, is there a reason why they perhaps even moved it to Christmas? Is there Christmas themes, a Christmas thing about it? Or was it just, eh, this seems like a good time for a setting. Um, I I don't know. I mean, themat thematically, it's a little harder to justify than the Green Knight, but I, I think you do still have that same idea of it's a time of wonders and something weird is going to happen. Um, so I think there's some of that. I don't know, Craig. Do you see? Do you so, see like one thing? I think is just the idea that Christmas was kind of a topsy turvy time, right? Where the lords would open yeah, up yeah, their yeah. house, give it to, and and sort of say, now you know, all the food is for everyone, and it's not just for me. And so you get that day where the peasants can demand things of the the king. Um, the same kind of thing is going on in the story by by letting a woman choose. That's topsy turvy. 
because she normally would not have sovereignty at all. And so Christmas is that time when roles seem to be switched and reversed. And that's, I imagine, what the main gist of it would be. That's um, that's an excellent that's an excellent catch. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, the topsy turviness of Christmas. I mean, that goes that goes back to Saturnalia for sure. Like that's yeah yeah. I was just gonna say, um, yeah. It 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 does seem a little like I I, I think that you're you're probably right, Craig. But it does seem also a little maybe like we need a bit more eyeballs on this story. So if we put it at Christmas, maybe people will pay attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, like like I said, the weird thing about medieval stuff is that for something to be said at Christmas is, is strange. Um, because like I said, during for medieval text, Christmas was not the big deal. Um, you know, that's, it was, it was certainly a holy day, but, um, it was probably still more associated with that more Saturnalia kind of thing. And it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, the higher ups didn't necessarily like it <laughs> as much. Cause like, like Benito said, there were plenty of movements even before the Puritans and before Protestantism where people were trying to tamp it down and, and get rid of all the celebrations. Uh, Cause it was just mm. too much. Easter was the big time. Yeah. So a question for, uh, <clears throat> for middle-aged kind of, nerdy and i mean that as a compliment guys so from a very young age you know encountering the story probably in howard Pyle, it, it struck me as incredibly feminist like a proto-feminist i should say uh startlingly so uh, i can't really think of too many examples from contemporary literature um do you folks think that this is a proto-feminist message what do women want as benito said sovereignty like when you use that particular term that seems very profound or could it be saying that women are shrews who just want their own way what do you think it means and what could it mean in a a modern interpretation yeah i think that it really depends on who was telling the version of the story because the story Mm. itself does itself to both and um like for example when chaucer tells the story in wife of bath i think it's it's pretty much universally seen that what he's doing is trying to give women sovereignty at that point like he's not even though some of the characters can seem shrewish most of the way that he tells the story is definitely in in the way that the one the one Gwen story tells it to, which is like, yes, the right answer is you let them do the right thing. But there are other versions of the story where it's, it's very obviously like, even if it ends up that you're doing it that way, it's more tongue in cheek. And it's saying, but what we really know is that, you know, women always want to, they always want to do the right thing or they, no, sorry, they always want to have the last word. They always want to be in charge and haha, that's cute and funny, you know, but, but let's get on to the real business. So I think it probably depends more on, on which version of the, the tale you're telling and i bet there's you're gonna see a ton of different ones yeah i yep i definitely agree because as that motif is repeated so often yeah it's going to be recontextualized i do think um you know it's presented as a good thing in the wife of bath's tale i think it's presented as good in the original middle english um gawain and ragnell because the the epilogue is about how ragnell was gawain's greatest wife and how he loved her even after she died and and all that kind of like the positive light that she's painted in uh, tells me that you're supposed to take her point of view that women's sovereignty is good. Um, take that at face value. Whereas I, later adaptations, I could see that it's meant to be yeah, tongue in cheek, satirical playing on the idea of that topsy turvy. Isn't that weird? What a funny thing to say. So yeah, I think it depends on the context and the adaptation of the story for sure. 
Yeah. Is there is there like a uh, you know sort of a gnostic or esoteric idea there as well of like uh, you know uh, spiritual sovereignty? Like um, uh, maybe I'm really reaching here, but it, it's a gnostic podcast. <laughs> um, uh, like that, there's the, yeah, like and going back to the, even that alchemical connection with the Green Knight. Like you know if if uh, if the woman is in some way sort of Sophia or Sophianic, you know, and she's asking for for sovereignty. I'm just kind of, yeah, I'm totally reaching, uh, asking experts if my reach even makes any sense. I, I don't think you are reaching. I, I, I can't bring it exactly to mind, but I do think I have seen that exact interpretation uh, of this story of uh, Ragnall representing, yeah, Sophia or wisdom in, in a way. So I don't, I don't think you're completely off base with that. No, no not at all. <laughs> Yeah, now that you said that, Jason, it's like she's literally wisdom because she gives him the answer to the <laughs> riddle. Right? And the other thing, too, is that Sophia was thought to have two natures, right? An ascended, mm. beautiful nature and a descended, ugly nature. And then part of human's role was to elevate Sophia up to the beautiful uh, um, aspect of her. Right, so yeah, you, there, there's probably some hints of it there. And talking about alchemy again, you know, there's um, our spiritual ancestors, uh, Jason and I, uh, in the Victorian age, as uh, Benito and Craig were saying, uh, everything that's new is actually old. Right, there's an unbroken <laughs> continuity of interesting things that goes back a long time. Right, and yeah. the Gnostics of the 1800s said oh there's an underground tradition a direct lineage it's very old well you know maybe uh, probably not that said there's aspects of gnosticism kind of sunk into the unconscious uh you kind of find it around europe in in different methods of transmission one of them being alchemy right i i honestly believe that there is a direct link from the ancient gnostics to alchemy they the alchemist even if i'm wrong the alchemists talked a lot about sophia uh and wisdom and use these female figures so you we have a, a route of transmission into this story um so there could be some historical stuff there, but if you're a, a modern Gnostic, uh, you're open to interpret it as you like. So you might enjoy this story as a Christmas Gnostic story. Hmm. Um, that said, well, we actually had a few more to get to, but we might have to wait to to next Christmas uh, because we are coming up into our, our time for, for wrapping up. So... For wrapping up, uh, Benito, give us your plugs. Uh, all right. If you want to know more about me, um, I'm the co-host of the Apocrypals uh, podcast with my friend Chris Sims, where we uh, read uh, uh, read through the Bible and other biblical texts, and we try to put them in historical and cultural contexts, uh, usually, usually using action uh, references, Star Wars jokes. Wrestling. <laughs> uh, we, we say if you can under, if you can understand the X Men, you can understand the Bible. So <laughs> we cover yeah both canonical and extra canonical texts. Um, and uh, I'm a contributor at, at uh, grunge.com. I have stuff going up there regularly. Um, also, you can find my own personal Christmas writing. If you like me talking about Christmas, um, I have a Gumroad store 
gumroad.com slash Benito Serino, and you can find um, PDF collections of my Christmas stories at pay what you want prices. And uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Benito underscore Serino. Cool. Craig. Uh, yeah, Benito is also an unpaid contributor to Weird Christmas Podcast at times. And I don't <laughs> research something, but I want to have a show about it. I just call him up and he talks and it's great. Um, no, but so I run weirdchristmas.com, uh, which has podcast, uh, Weird Christmas Podcast. And I share social me on social media all over the place. Um, the thing that got me into this years ago was collecting strange old Victorian postcards. And um, I have thousands of them and I share tons a day, about 15 to 20 a day um, all through the year, but especially during Christmas time, uh, just kind of keep them on a, a, a roll. And it's fun to just kind of see some of the strange stuff that they come up with. But otherwise, yeah, Weird Christmas Podcast, do a lot of history, but also do uh, read a ghost story every year and run a, an annual flash fiction contest. Uh, which is going to be coming out here pretty soon for this year with a whole bunch of, of really amazingly wonderful, super short stories um, every year. And that's that's great. The That's the one thing I would definitely plug just because it's my favorite thing. And it's so cool to see all the, the wonderfully weird, strange ideas and stories about Christmas that people come up with. Cool. I should say, you know, maybe because you're Gnostic, there might be, I, I do have another podcast which has no connection to uh, Christmas, but it's called Rereading Wolf. And Gene Wolf is a writer that people who are in Gnosticism might be interested in because a lot of people who read Gene Wolf think that he was a Gnostic, or at least that his major book, Book of the New Sun, was Gnostic. So uh, you may know that. And if so, Rereading Wolf, we go chapter by chapter through his books. Uh, I'm a big fan of that book, but I think I read it before I got into Gnosticism. So yeah, done. Very cool. Very, very <laughs> cool. There we go. I know I haven't read it, so Jason, we'll have to. You have to reread it. I'll have to read it, and we'll have to talk about it through a, a Gnostic lens. Uh, Jason, your plugs. Uh, not much to say. Uh, I, I did a, a live D and D game that, that was Christmas themed, but I did that uh, day before yesterday. Although actually, it should be on YouTube if you go to the D twenty initiative. Uh, I didn't think about that, so the producer for the show won't have that that up on your screen. But the D twenty initiative. If you give that a Google, we're a live play D&D game, and uh, we did a Christmas special yesterday, or two days ago. So give that a watch. And other than that, I make theater. Um, I, I do a little bit of writing, um, and that's that's all my stuff. SageTheater.com if you really want to see the theater stuff. Amazing. And then uh, my plug is I have some training and uh, hundreds of hours now of experience, uh, not just with Gnosticism and Christian contemplation, but with meditation and mindfulness in a secular way. Now, if you are Gnostic or spiritual or religious, I would highly recommend having a meditation practice. And if you're none of those things, also a meditation practice is <laughs> pretty rad. So I uh, lead, uh, facilitate uh, the open secular meditation. I'm not going to try to convert you to you know any weird Gnostic stuff. I'm going to use that psychologically based uh, meditation training that I've received every <laughs> Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Uh, Montreal time, which is Eastern Standard Time, so same time as, say, New York. Uh, it is by donation slash free, 
And if you go to mileendmeditation.substack.com, all the details are there. Obviously, right now I am doing it online. Uh, we were doing it in person, but I think in the future we will, uh, once the vaccine, everybody gets the jab, we will do it both online and in person. So uh, feel free to hop on that. It's good for both beginners and it's good for people who have uh, experience of meditation. And if you've never meditated before, I give instructions at the beginning you can even hit me up if you're i don't know self-conscious about meditating and you know we can talk about 10 minutes before uh the session so that's my plug my final plug is merry christmas everybody thanks so much for joining <laughs> us uh, i hope that you have an awesome holiday season in the worst year that i've been alive uh let's hope that 2021 brings better things uh i doubt it will but that's the gnostic in me okay good night everybody merry christmas Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you. I'm <laughs> sorry.